Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Thursday, February 23rd. My background suggests I'm in a hotel, um, and I am in New York City, the heart of American capitalism, not far from Wall Street the real heart of American capitalism. And today we're continuing our conversation about the consequences or implications of American free market capitalism. Uh, yesterday we did a good show with um, an academic uh, from Baltimore, Daniel Hatcher, who has a new book out on entitled Injustice Inc., How America's Justice System Commodifies Children. It's a frightening book about the way in which... Uh, the, the criminal justice system seems to have taken all the worst aspects uh, of the market, of radical free market capitalism, and transformed children and the poor into commodities. So it results in the commodification uh, of poor people and young people in America, which only uh, compounds inequality. It's a chilling book, chilling um, a chilling uh, scenario, and perhaps most chilling of all, it's not very surprising. It almost seems logical and inevitable, given much of the nature of the American system. Today, we're taking uh, a, the bigger picture on this. Uh, Hatcher focused very specifically on uh, local government and local judiciaries in, in contemporary America. Today, we're taking uh, the Long View, The Big View, with the co-author of a new book, The Big Myth, How American Business Taught Us to Loathe Government and Love the Free Market. Uh, Eric M. Conway is uh, part of a team of authors with Naomi uh, Oreskes. They are already best-selling authors. Some of you be familiar with their book, Merchants of Doubt, which focuses on uh, propaganda, I guess, within the environmental movement. And now they've switching their sights to capitalism itself. Uh, and Eric is joining me. We had some problems with technology, Eric. Maybe the technology recognized that you were a critic of free market capitalism, so it was stopping you broadcast yourself. Is that possible? I hope it's not that smart. <laughs> um, well, in, in all seriousness, your book is a really interesting one. And again, it's not surprising. It reflects and perhaps is a, a, a cause of our current zeitgeist, of our shift away from a faith in the free market, um, a reaction against neoliberalism. We've done many, many shows on it. Eric, tell me a little bit about the book. It's In a way, it's an intellectual history. Is that fair of the cult of the free market? Yeah, that's certainly fair. Um, what we, after Merchants of Doubt, we in, in that book, we we looked at the activities of a handful of physicists who put their uh, who spent their retirement careers um, lending apparently objective information and comments and claims um, uh, to cost, cast doubt on various environmental problems of for acid rain and, and ozone depletion and climate change. Um, and we concluded what they were motivated for was was market fundamentalism, um, the idea that freedom is best protected by free markets. Um, and so what we set out to do in this book is tell the story, tell the history of, of market fundamentalism, 
um, and starting in the late 19th century. And is this uh, a peculiarly American story, Eric, uh, or are you telling it uh, in the context of the evolution of American capitalism, or is it a global story? Our story is primarily American, though not exclusively, um, because uh, where we've decided we needed to start was back with child labor. Um, and at the time, this was a, a, a hot topic in the United States in the late 19th century. There was also um, really industrial carnage going on. Enormous numbers of people maimed and killed um, in the workplace. There were no no kinds of workplace safeties, no, no compensation systems, nothing like unemployment insurance. Um, and and in resolving those those crises, the U.S. actually drew, drew on um, other countries' efforts to try to improve the situation. Um, and throughout, there's the counterpoint, of course, of, of manufacturers' organizations trying to prevent anything from being done by the government. Um, but we do show that that there was there's more to than just the United States in this picture. So, Eric, do you, reading, of course, Marx, is Communist Manifesto, which I think he wrote in 1848, in which he imagined a rampant capitalism completely out of control, dehumanizing the world. In, in your view, was American capitalism like that at the end of the 19th century before you had a more regulatory economy? Oh, Absolutely. You just have to look at the accident statistics to see it, it was more dangerous to to work in a factory in the United States or on the railroads than it than it was to fight in World War One. Wow. Well, give, give me some numbers. I mean, that's a that's a that's a fairly shocking uh, assumption. What do you mean? I mean, that you were more likely to die in a factory than you were in the trenches. Well, could you explain how and why? Give me give me some numbers because that well, sounds I can't, pretty amazing. I, we wrote this book eighteen months ago. I can't remember numbers. Um, well, you but can't make an assumption. And, I mean, that's a that's a pretty. Out, I, I'm not saying you're wrong, but that's a pretty outrageous assumption to suggest that you were safer going off to war in the in 1916 or 17, whenever America entered the war, than going to work at your local factory. But it's not an assumption of ours. I mean, we do discuss this in the book. I mean, remember, this is an era of no regulation. Um, so the res your employers were not responsible for harms to you. And the American court systems protected them um, on the grounds that, well, the worker knew best what was safe, not the employer. So the res workers were responsible for harm to themselves. That's how the system was built. No, I understand that. And I'm certainly not challenging you on that. But I, I just... That, that that assumption that it was safer to to go to war than to work in a factory, I, I hadn't heard that before. I'd be curious, but perhaps uh, we'll, we'll 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 refer to it in 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 the podcast notes. Um, Eric, so why was this the case? I mean, it was obviously the case not just in the United States but throughout Europe. What about the role of labor unions uh, and other political parties in terms of fighting back and demanding rights for workers within the factory? Well, of course, in the United States, labor unions had no federal protection um, and very few states provided any state level protection either. Um, in part, that's because of the relationship of unions to Marxism, right? Dread communism was used even in the 19th century as the bugaboo against which 
real Americans should fight. Um, and so unions don't gain any level of federal recognition until the New Deal in the 1930s. So is there labor union yet? Pushback, yes. There is labor violence and business violence um, throughout the later 19th century and early 20th century. Um, and, and, and as I said, there, there's not federal protection of any or recognition of unions until Interact of 1935. There is, though, a great deal of class struggle or conflict, however you want to put it. Uh, we had Adam Hothchild on the show. He's written a book about class struggle during the First World War. And there was, of course, a progressive movement and there were trust-busting presidents like Teddy Roosevelt. Are you dismissing the trust-busters? Are you dismissing the progressive movement in terms of fighting for the rights of the, of the working class? No, of course not. Um, those The trust busters, for example, Naomi and I are, are, are very much in favor of a more competitive kind of capitalism. Um, and so trust busting to us was a remedy, a form of regulation that we have largely abandoned um, since. And we, and later in the book, we talk about how, um, uh, um, how the Chicago School of Economics set out to undermine um, antitrust legislation um, through various mechanisms that we explain in the book, various historical processes as well. Um, and so this progressive movement, trust busting, as well as um, efforts to improve the lot of labor certainly exist um, through the through the in the early 20th century. Um, our argument is that throughout that period, the manufacturers organizations are working to forestall their success um, through a whole series of propaganda operations like the National Electric Light Association's campaign to prevent the regulation of electricity. Yeah, and you write about that in, in some detail in the book. Um, I mean, you use this word propaganda uh, Eric, uh, everyone, everyone's argument is somebody else's propaganda of one kind or another. I mean, what, what, isn't it legitimate for manufacturers to make their argument? And, and that's the nature of politics in a, in a democracy that other people can make their arguments to. What happened in the 1920s to lay the foundation? Was it a consequence of, of three quite conservative Republican presidents, Harding, Coolidge, um, and Hoover. Do you see the 20s as essential in what you call the, uh, the great myth or the big myth? Well, what we do is we set um, a lot of our work in the New Deal response to the Great Depression. Um, and because that begins to expose um, the failure of the market capitalism system that's that's been erected across that time, um, and so that way we can show the contrast um, with with you know both what had gone before and what comes since. Um, that was our our methodology. Um, certainly, the progressive Republicans had some um, inroads into improving lot of labor and yet they still don't provide union recognition. There's still um, lots of uh, violence against 
workers trying to organize by businesses um and and so so that's that's how we chose to set up the story as I said, we've done a lot of shows on neoliberalism. We had Gary Gerstle, wonderful book, The Rise and Fall of Neoliberalism, which he traces from, like you, the 20s through to about the early 1970s. How do you historicize this, Eric? You talked about the New Deal, of course, which was followed by LBJ's Great Society. Um, was there a period after the 1920s where this market fundamentalism fell into a minority, that it wasn't particularly popular and most people didn't take it very seriously. Of course, there were there were periods where the Hayeks and the von Mises and um, and even the Milton Friedmans weren't taken very seriously. Right. Well, that, so our argument is that the Great Depression and the Roosevelt administration's response to the Great Depression um, is that era, beginning of that era in which market fundamentalism was no longer taken very seriously. Um, and so the story we, we, we tell is, is how business leaders um, take bring von Mises and Hayek to America, um, set them up in, in, in universities in the United States so that their work can become the, the beginnings of a new revival of market fundamentalism. But yes, we, we absolutely see the New Deal as a beginning of a period that lasts into really the 1970s in which those kinds of ideas, the, the, uh, the um, neoliberalism, if you want to call it that, we call it market fundamentalism, um, is seen as discredited and, and and not taken seriously in the seventies is the beginning or well, so is when it, those ideas of, of free markets and so forth begin to take hold again in the public mind. So, so Eric, there was for 50 years or certainly for 30, 40, 30 or 40 years, a serious debate amongst economists. Keynes of course was critical. Uh, many economists on the left versus what you would call the market fundamentalist economists, although other people might call them neoliberals. Some people just simply call them conservatives. Is there, in, in your assumption of, of this sort of the big myth and propaganda and so on and so forth, are you acknowledging that there was a legitimate intellectual debate about the role of the market and government? And in fact, there still is. I mean, wouldn't it be fair to say that now, Hayek, you might not like Hayek, you might not like Friedman, but these are serious economists. Well, so the image of Hayek we've been given through the propaganda apparatus, of course, is not the Hayek as he actually wrote. He was a much more sophisticated thinker than um, than we would get as filtered through Milton Friedman. And so one of the stories we tell in the book is the way um, Friedman is essentially hired to produce an Americanized version of Hayek um, and, and ultimately filters out much of the nuance that had been in Hayek's own work. Um, your larger question is, isn't there a legitimate debate about the role, proper role of government? And the answer is yes, of course. Um, we should always debate the role of government in society, but that is not what our business leaders wanted to see. They wanted a particular crystalline pure version of laissez-faire capitalism to dominate in the United States. And that is what they tried to sell through numerous um, through e numerous efforts. And so we show how they tried to 
to bias movies away from economic and social criticism, um, how they use children books to do this, how they they tried to plant free market curriculum in seminaries so that church leaders would echo their desired words. Um, and and so again, is there a pr there a proper role for debate? Yes, absolutely. But that is not what our business leaders wanted. They who, wanted who to in particular, when you talk about these business leaders, you suggested that, and I, I think I'm quoting you, they hired Milton Friedman to oversimplify uh, Hayek and turn him into propaganda. Who were these business leaders? Uh, it's, well, they're or business leaders organized around the National Association of Manufacturers um, and a number of people that we name in the book um, who supported, uh, uh, excuse me, um, who were supporting uh in fact, one in particular, the Lunau Foundation, in, that was paying Hayek salary at the University of Chicago. Um, they had a particular set of visions that they wanted communicated. Was there an architect, an intellectual architect of this, what you call propaganda? Um, you know, uh, we had, for example, on the show, um, uh, Morris Saatchi, who uh, was in some ways the intellectual architect of Thatcherism. He has an interesting new novel out, out about whether or not uh, he should go to hell or heaven. I think he has a bit of a guilty conscience. But was there an equivalent of a Morris Saatchi or, or, some, or a, um, somebody who, who understood how to make an argument and set out to, as you say, vulgarize Hayek and create the cult of the free market? It's a marketing effort more than anything else, Eric, you're suggesting, it, yeah? It is a marketing effort. Um, and so there are a number of foundations set up to do it. Um, the one, of course, the one that's become pretty famous is Mount Pelerin Society um, that was that was rather private in its efforts to orchestrate a revival of the And that was the place where these early economists met in Europe uh, after yeah. the first 1924, I think. But, but Eric, isn't there a legit, I mean, especially in the Europe of the 20s and 30s, they, the, the Hayek and even Friedman, I mean, I, I'm no expert on Friedman, but you seem to suggest that he's some sort of stooge for manufacturers. Is, is that fair to Friedman? I, 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 I'm guessing he'd be turning in his grave. I'm sure he would. I'm not calling him a stooge. I'm well, saying, you are. He's You're a saying that he, he was paid to vulgarize. He was, so Friedman, no doubt, I have absolutely no doubt, believed what he was saying. I really don't, because what happens is that people are funded to do what the funders want, but there has to be a commonality of interest, right? We expect that someone like Lunau would find a thinker who thinks as he does, and and get and have and ensure that that person can um, spread his views. That doesn't make him a stooge. That doesn't make Friedman a stooge. It makes him a frankly a normal person who's chosen um, what arguments he wants to make and how he's going to make them and what sort of forum. And it just gives him the opportunity, right? But that doesn't make you. Um, yeah, that doesn't make him as a fool, right? That's not at all what we are arguing. Well, you, you're, you're, you're suggesting in a way he's worse than a fool, that he's a smart That man. he knows exactly what he's doing because and he, he did. To, to, um, 
Now, I don't want to turn this into a show about, I don't know enough about Friedman to, 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 to argue one way or the other, um, but it sounds to me as if you're suggesting that there isn't a legitimate free market argument. Is that correct? I think that's right, because the, the, the larger point we try to make in the book, and that I think it, it is simply that markets are always regulated. They always have been, right? A black market is regulated by the guys that break your knees if you don't pay. Okay, there's no such thing as a free market. And so the question is, how should a market be regulated and by whom, as you asked it, and one of your earlier questions was, you know, was, excuse me, <laughs> one of your own earlier questions was, is there a debate for the proper role of government? And the answer is, well, yes, but there's, the reality is markets are made by governments. They're set by law, by and, and adjudicated by courts and and so forth. So the real question isn't regulation or no regulation, but the nature of regulation. Um, and yet, as we the stories we tell in the book are efforts to by by our actors like Milton Friedman and so on to minimize government regulation of business people so that they are free to pursue their interests and not all of ours. What, why did they win, Eric? I mean, after all, um, there are many wealthy people in and out of America who strongly disagree with this. There's an organized labor union movement in the United States. There was a Democratic Party. There still is with a relatively strong progressive wing. How did, how did they get to be so successful, particularly in America? Is it just in your view, this, this idea uh, you use the word propaganda. Did they did they get to the kids in the schools and in the seminaries? Um, they did get to the kids in the schools and the seminaries, but that's not the entire story. Um, part of the part of what the story that we tell is that in the seventies, there kind of really is a crisis um, of of the New Deal order in that. Um, well, we have the rampant inflation, the great inflation of the 70s of, of high inflation, but stagnant economies, which two things which were not supposed to happen in within the Keynesian economic framework. Um, and that gave Friedman and his fellow free market economists the, the purchase, the political capital um, to gain access to power. And then, of course, with Ronald Reagan, um, they, Friedman became one of the most influential economists again in the United States. But the seventies uh, great inflation. If, big... if we had a Friedmanite or a Thatcherite or a Reaganite on this show, they would say that by the seventies there was a crisis, as you suggested, of yes, real economics. And so their argument isn't propaganda; it's not untruth. It might not even be simply the interests of the manufacturing class or manufacturers. It's simply the best kind of economics. And over the last 50 years, some of them at least would argue that America has become much richer and much more successful. A portion of America has become much richer. That's certainly the case when you know, we, we talked already yes. about inequality. Now, also, the other thing they would say, and, and I, I'm not a big fan of these people, but I'm guessing if we had a a neoliberal on the show, they would say, well, it's just as bad these days with George Soros. He's funding all these progressive movements. He's against the government. You bring up 
Soros in your book. Um, uh, he's clearly in your camp or our camp. We did a show about Soros recently with Peter Osnos, a friend of his. Remarkable man, Soros. But how would you respond to their arguments that that what you call propaganda is just as prevalent on the left amongst progressives funded by men like Soros or Gates and is today having equally destructive impact on America? So I would probably agree with much of it because as a historian, I am always bothered by claims that are untrue. But the story we chose to tell, again, because the market fundamentalist revival has been so destructive to so many people, is we've focused on that um, that particular propaganda effort. I remember our previous book was following um, a group of, of, of senior scientists who lent their uh, um, time and effort in retirement to what becomes a, a propaganda effort to forestall environmental regulation. Do you see, I mean, that's a narrow, a narrow issue. Do you see them as being relatively identical, this scientific attempt to deny global warming versus the, the neoliberal attempt to fetishize the free market? Are they quite similar? They're quite similar anyway. Nothing's ever identical, but they're very quite, they're quite similar. We, um, we've, we've, because we, well, part of, we were interested in the beginnings of, of market fundamentalism. We were really, really looking for when these kinds of misleading arguments start to really become prevalent. Um, and again, we find it with, with NILA and, and uh, the National Association of Mission Manufacturers in, in the late 19th century. Where are we in the narrative of the big myth, um, Eric? As I said, we did a show with Gary Gerstle, his award-winning book, The Rise and Fall of Neoliberalism, suggests that we're at the end of the neoliberal age. It seems as if many of the political figures, at least in America, are on, on the right, are much more interested in culture wars, trumps anything but a neoliberal or fetishizing the market, nor does the Santis seem to be. Do you think we are at the end of the big myth or is it still there? Oh, I think the big myth is still there, but I also think that it may finally be losing some of its power over us for, I mean, exactly the things you say. Um, it's neither Biden nor Trump can be described fairly as neoliberals. Um, and I think there are lots of people in both parties that, that, that now sit at that position um, of, of, and, and so the question to me as a historian, and, and, and historians are ter have terrible crystal balls about the future, um, is what comes after? And I really don't know, but I, I do agree with you. I, I, I think the, the myth of the free market is crumbling. Um, and I, I'm, I'm very curious and a little bit frightened to know what replaces it. Do you think that the history of the big myth is a warning about think tanks? Do you think we, they need to be more carefully regulated financed by men like Charles Koch or perhaps George Soros, that we need to be clear about where these think tanks get their money so that people can judge for themselves on the messages they're putting out? Well, of course, as you know, in the United States, regulating ideas is largely impossible. Um, so what, 
And that's a good thing, isn't it? Exactly. We don't really, we don't want to lose completely the idea um, that, uh, that, 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 that free expression should exist at some level. Um, So, so would I want the government deciding what the, you know, Foundation for Economic Education or Cato or whatever can and can't say, no, of course I don't want that. That that's that would be just as bad as as attempting to, you know, regulate what's taught. Well, in it may not be regular, but, you know, we, we have when we go to the supermarket, we know how many calories are contained in yeah. a chocolate bar. And we know that cigarettes are bad for, for one's health uh, because of regulation. Shouldn't we know who's funding these think tanks so that we can judge a little bit more critically. What yeah. You call the big myth. Yes. And so, so I'm a, f- a supporter of, of financial disclosure. Certainly. Um, I'm not sure that that's sufficient. What I would also like is to see a lot more um, thought and attention paid by, by journalists to that precise issue. Who's paying for these words to be spoken. Um, and because that's that 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 was a big issue for merchants of doubt too. Um, the whole idea of a, these networks of think tanks was to try to make it appear as if ideas coming from the think tanks are are common knowledge, wisdom, true science, etc. Um, and it took experienced reporters sometimes years to figure out that they're just mouthpieces. And so they're they're we. We need a class of journalists who, who um, understand the issues, where the money comes from, and so forth. And that's that's also not a thing that that the government should be doing. I don't think. Eric Nam is central in your narrative. National Association of Manufacturers, yeah. certainly from the 1950s, when many corporations were quite conservative, and as you say fetishize the market. These days, though, a lot of the most progressive ideas seem to be coming out of business schools. And some of American America's most powerful and valuable wealthy companies, corporations seem to be quite progressive. There's a huge debate within the business schools about whether or not capitalism or a reformed socially conscious capitalism can actually um, reshape America. Can manufacturers, Eric, can they can they themselves or are they liberating themselves from the big myth and recognizing that government should and does have a role in, in American uh, society and in regulating uh, capitalism? Well, so I'd have to say that's possible, sure, because it used to be that way, right? It, it 40 years ago, 50 years ago, American corporations were not purely run um, for the shareholders' bottom line, right? There, there was a more socially conscious capitalism. We had much lower inequality. Um, companies infested in their communities. Not all of them, but some of them did. So that's been true in the past, even in the United States. Um, and of course, it's it's true in many European countries. So our argument is not that capitalism is bad and we should throw it all out, but that capitalism as the United States practices it is particularly um, inhumane and, and unequal and that there and, and it needs reform. Um, and then Again, as you asked earlier, we should have an active debate over what kinds of reforms those should be. Are there companies that, in your mind, um, 
our, our models for, for more social responsibility? Of course, companies like Patagonia come to mind. Well, I wouldn't really know because my job is studying the past and not the present. Um, so I, I wouldn't want to uh, wander into the minefield you know, of trying to name some names. I mean, you, you, I assume you read the newspapers and stuff, don't you? Sure. The question is, how much do I trust what's in them? That's been oh dear, well, that's another. Maybe your third book about the uh, the <laughs> press. Although the press seems, I'm guessing that the press is actually fairly sympathetic to your your argument. Certainly, uh, well, the they might be. But... And um, and and the New York Times. Anyway, that's another subject. Finally, yeah. Eric, you're you're known in particular as um, a historian of science and technology, as uh, as an environmentalist. You've suggested that the big myth is very similar to the merchants of doubt. Uh, mm. These big lies. But um, I wonder what the role of the big myth has been in global warming, in the destruction of the environment. It seems to be central, isn't it? Well, I think it's central um, be because it, it, the whole, it, in order to solve these environmental problems, whether it's climate change or, or ozone depletion in the past and acid rain, um, etc. There has to be some kind of, of government regulation. Um, the whole point of the big myth was turning the public against the government and its regulatory authorities. Um, so, to us, that 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 was central um, in in what has happened in in preventing any kind of meaningful action um, against climate change. Um, 